Well, so far, this will be our sixth little topic that we've dealt with. Tonight we're going to deal with the subject of salvation. We have hit upon it pretty pretty good along the way because it's almost impossible to avoid and make sense of some of the different teachings that, that uh, Mormons believe uh, regarding their exaltation and whatnot, um, what they think about God, what they think about Jesus. It's hard to do that and not touch on what they believe about salvation. Uh, so tonight we're going to go a little bit more in depth on that. I, I promised you guys a chart that I had picked up uh, <clears throat> in, the, in the slides tonight that I think, it probably, if you can get the chart in your mind, it makes sense of it. I probably should have introduced it earlier, but uh, nonetheless we'll talk about it tonight. All right. So the Mormon view of mankind and his salvation is actually, it's actually the doctrine of eternal progression. And when when... What we mean by salvation as uh, eternal life in heaven with God, uh, they, they don't see that as eternal life. They don't see that as salvation. They see eternal life as the propagation of eternal progression, and we'll see that as we go along. They do see that what Jesus did, again, in coming to this earth to die for man's sins, was actually to enable resurrection only. And that is really, in that sense, universal or very, very nearly universal, uh, as Pat pointed out. So we'll look at that again. Pat pointed that out the other night, that only the sons of perdition and Satan and his angels would not be. So me and Bob and Satan and his angels. Because Bob got told he was the son of perdition, and so did I by my own mother. Politely, I would say, and fearfully, um, but, but we'll talk a little bit about that. All right. In this scheme of eternal progression, God's key purpose for having spirit children, and this is a key expression, spirit children, was for them to obtain a physical body and to progress to Godhood. That is what he intended. There are various estates through which one must pass in order to become a God. And they believe that there are different levels of heaven. We're going to look at, there's some scriptures that they believe teach this. Uh, <clears throat> something that I didn't make uh, really, really clear here in this first point is that they believe that this purpose was fulfilled uh, and is continuing to be fulfilled in heaven right now and was also fulfilled prior to the earth being uh, populated with people. And they have several scriptures that they think teach that and we'll look at it. They have several scriptures that teach that we existed prior to coming to this earth physically and that we would be born according to merit. <clears throat> Not chronologically, but in terms of circumstance. According to merit. Well, depending on how we aligned ourselves when there was a great war in heaven. Merit. Merit. What did I, what did, what did it say? Mary. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and if you carry it wrong, the one third that were faithful They don't get into the thirds on the other two, but it would be the other two thirds, yeah, because they think Yeah. That is true that the ones who would not align themselves were, but I've never I don't ever have recalled come across the one third on those. Uh, just the fractions, the only thing that you debate in my mind. But definitely, those would be marked with the seed of Cain, uh, with the uh, sign of Cain, as they would say. All right. And then, of course, in order to reach the highest reward after death, which is the celestial kingdom, then one would have to be a Mormon. <clears throat> and if you really want eternal life, you have to be uh, not only a Mormon, a faithful Mormon who obeys celestial law, but you have to be married and have that marriage sealed in the temple and also have your children sealed in the temple. The terrestrial level of salvation can be gained by proxy baptism for the dead. And so these are the basic ideas that they have regarding salvation, what could only loosely be called salvation. All right, so we're going to look at that idea first. Uh, as I mentioned, they've got several scriptures we're going to take a look at that they believe teach the preexistence of the soul prior to coming uh, into this mortal state, the, which they call the second estate. The first estate, of course, being that pre-existent spiritually. <clears throat> then we're going to talk about eternal progression, uh, what that means to them, and then the three kingdoms of heaven. 
And I mentioned that chart. We'll look at that right after we get into this, uh, this position being documented. All right. This is from the Journal of Discourses, Brigham Young. The first, uh, things were first created spiritually. The Father actually begat the spirits. Uh, they, they, of course, teach that not only he didn't do this by himself, he has a wife in heaven. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So if you remain single all your life, you can't, you can't be, get up near exalted? That is absolutely true. You can absolutely cannot. And in fact, one reason Mormons are so prolific in having offspring is because the more offspring they have, the quicker they'll get to the point where they will have to be gods with their own dominions. The uh, things were first created spiritually. The Father actually begat the spirits. They were brought forth, lived with him. Okay, so this is, by the way, this is prior to the earth ever having been created. Or, per Mormons, what? Created or? Reorganized. Exactly. Or, or, exactly. You, you've been listening. Very good. Uh, then he commenced the work of creating earthly tabernacles. That's our bodies. <clears throat> Precisely as he's been, now this is really shocking stuff, but this is Brigham Young now, uh, way back in the 1870s. Precisely as he had been created in this flesh himself, back on Kalab. Okay, by partaking of the coarse material that was organized and composed, composed this earth until his system was charged with it. Consequently, the tabernacles of the children were organized from the coarse materials of this earth. What this also gets into is where did this whole thing start and how long will it go on? Well, they're not ambiguous about how long it will go on. This will go on into eternity. We'll see a quote on that. They are somewhat ambiguous about exactly where it started because you really get into some philosophical problems with who was the first God? Was there a first God? Uh, you say he was born in the flesh. Did he, did he organize the, the universe or not? Which part? And some would say he did everything, and he's the only one that did that. He's the first, and then others would say that he's not. So here's the chart that I mentioned. <clears throat> we won't go over the whole thing now because I'm going to bring it up several times. But this is that realm that we were talking about at the beginning uh, where you have uh, things are disorganized, there are eternal intelligences, there, are, there is internal matter. Among those eternal intelligences is God, God who through his own endeavors, who through his own application, diligence, according to the principles, eternal principles of the gospel. They use words like that that just start straining the definitions pretty severely, that he uh, applied himself to those principles and was faithful, and because of that, that he began to excel and eventually reached, he actually eventually, as Brigham Young just said, was born on an earth, uh, became a Mormon, was then uh, exalted in the celestial kingdom, and by virtue of his family and his wife, uh, and their offspring uh, needed a dominion, and of which we are now that part of that dominion. So that's this this very long time ago state. And then after he reached uh, his exaltation and, uh, and and was having his children, uh, and numbering in the many, 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 many millions and millions and millions and billions, at some point in time in this process, there was war in heaven, and that's when Lucifer, the second of his children, um, came up with the plan for salvation. And his plan was to take away the agency of man, and he was going to make it happen. You won't, he said to God, you will not lose one soul. But the fact is, God didn't want it that way. Uh, he chose Jesus Christ, his firstborn, because what he would do, what he would keep the, the, um, uh, the agency of man intact, and would simply offer man the, the option for salvation. So, the third that you were talking about were cast out of heaven. They become evil. They did not then get a chance. You know, they were just like us. They were in the spirit world. We were there. And <clears throat> we had an opportunity to join them, but we did not. Now, depending on our varying degrees of faithfulness to Christ and to God during this particular conflict, that allowed us to get born physically according to merit. Now, what the merit was, again, is how we acted in that situation. 
the reward would not be a chronological when we would be born, but the circumstances in which we were born. See, Mormons believed that by virtue of the fact that they were born in the Mormon families, that they were, they were closer to God already. They were favored in, when they came into this world to be born in Utah and things like that. <clears throat> or wherever. I'm being a little bit facetious. One yeah. common phrase you see running through false doctrine is that I do something and it makes you better than somebody. And, now, I have to work for it. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Satan, in deceiving man, he rehashes some of the very same things over and over. It, you will be like God. Well, what is this? You're going to be God. And it really demotes God. They, they suddenly, you know, it, it denigrates God from his eternal lofty position, which is who he is and what he is, and takes him down to nothing more than exalted man. So Satan, he doesn't like God. He doesn't like any of the ways of God. He'll take him and invert them whenever he gets a chance, and he'll certainly try to take God off of his throne every time he gets a chance. <clears throat> Um, all right, so we're not going to go through the whole thing right now. We'll get to this a little bit more. But then that gets us uh, to the earth. But now the thing is, on the, uh, the, the Satan and his angels, they didn't get any chance to go to the earth. They're, they're uh, consigned to being spirit entities only throughout. And, of course, they're going to end up over here in the second death with the uh, sons of perdition. All right, now let's look at some of the texts that they used to now, we're not looking at the whole thing right now. We're only looking at the first part. We're looking at the pre-existence of the soul, so to, so to speak. <clears throat> so Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, they think they found something here that would prove that, or at least elude to it. So let's look over there. I'll ask one of you to volunteer to, uh, to read that while I turn, if you're already there. Jeremiah number five. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? You know, he's talking to Jeremiah, and he's saying, before, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, a Mormon would say, how could he know him if he didn't exist? Jeremiah, therefore, had to exist prior to being in the womb. Before you were born, I sanctified you. That means they not only he knew him, but they, he was participating in ordinances. You know, they can see some pretty elaborate stuff there. Uh, I ordained you a prophet. They would have Jeremiah here in heaven with God as a spirit before his physical father, and, uh, and, and him ordaining and sanctifying him prior to being come, giving him his mission. Uh, of course, Jeremiah would lose consciousness of that, just like we did. We have no consciousness, and they don't have, they don't dispute that at all. We have no consciousness of our affairs prior, but that was necessary to test us properly. So what is, you know, so that looks pretty convincing, doesn't it? But it's really not that, uh, not that convincing when you consider who's, who's talking, who's, who's, who's saying these things here. It, this, it, it, from a physical standpoint, we don't know of things before they exist. We don't know what's going to happen before they happen. But certainly, God's not limited in those ways as we are. You, you were going to say something, Pat? You just asked if it was speaking after God. Oh, sorry. So yeah. Yeah, and, and the Bible bears that out. And that's what really the thrust of what we're going to look at here in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to This is a good example of core knowledge. It's not through that yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Calvinists would say that here that he he did force him to be a prophet. That is, that Isaiah or rather Jeremiah in this case didn't have any say in the matter. But but that's a subject we're not going to go down that road right now. you would have a point if that was the only person I would talk about it. In most cases, the first thing is not the only person I would talk about. Well, that's true, and con- you know that's too main. And anytime you're dealing with any error, is context and uh, other passages that are more clear, and then that's the case here. Uh, and the other thing that these guys do, and I've already mentioned this at least once, is they they like to take something about which little is known, about which there appears to be some mystery, uh, some ambiguity, and then they see that as an opportunity to take that and to develop something that 
fairly hard to dis- dis- dispute unless you uh, unless you have some other scriptures. <clears throat> All right. Verse 10 here, declaring the end, now this is God, we'll go back to verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. So this is just a simple illustration that God can see things and know things before they are. Now, Romans chapter 4, verse 17, I think is, even more explicit on that point <clears throat> because it states explicitly that God uh, can call forth things prior to their actual existence. Okay? 4.17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, of course, Abraham, in the presence of him who he belie- in whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And we use this for two points. One, uh, when God, this seems to be, to, to speak not only to Abraham and uh, the fact that he would have, when, when God told him you're going to be the father of many nations, those children didn't exist. And so it's showing, it shows that clearly. But also this is a general principle. God has the power to speak of things that do not exist uh, both material things as, as though they do exist because when he gets good and ready, they will exist. And, and he, can, he can do that sort of thing because of who he is. And here we're using that same point to, to, to make... Uh, Jeremiah did not have to exist for God to speak things, to know things about him uh, because God has the power to call things uh, as though they did exist even though they do not. Yes, sir. I think you have a parallel between if God can purpose the world, the world existing is purpose. Mm-hmm. If he can purpose the world, yet that doesn't mean that it really exists at the time he's planning it. He can do the same thing with the uh, with men. Mm-hmm. That's right. He's got a parallel there. So if you demand that merely because he makes a promise or makes a statement about planning ahead for a person before that person is born, and the fact that he has plans for the world before the world is made, mm-hmm. means that the world already had to exist. That's exactly right. You've got a parallel there, and if you, if you, if you can't have it, I mean, you've got, you got to be consistent there. That's right. But if you're going to demand that this means that it already exists, you'd have to say that about the world. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and the other point there is, any, well, the other point I would make, just any time we have a prophecy in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament about the things that would happen in the New Testament or happen later in the Old Testament, the destruction of Tyre, for example. Uh, God spoke about those things in the present and or past tense as though they had already happened. And clearly they had not happened. They wouldn't happen for several centuries. But that speaks to who God is. He, is, he has the capability to do that. So really and tr- truly any prophecy would be an example of God's time to transcend time. Another example of the fact that God transcends not only time, but he transcends the physical created universe. All right, Job chapter 38. If if Job were a physical, or rather a spiritual entity prior to coming to this earth, and prior to our chart before, he would definitely have had to have existed prior to uh, coming on this earth. He would have had to existed right there at the very uh, beginning before the earth was ever created. How then does uh, God ask him here in chapter 38, verse 4 of Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Okay, when you look back over to chapter 40, Job answering the Lord says, uh, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no more. Job was speechless. He didn't have an answer to this. God didn't imply in any way that Job was present or that Job could have possibly known. Job was not present whenever God created the earth. <clears throat> Yet he would have had to have been if the, uh, if the Mormon position is correct. All right, Zechariah chapter 12 speaks explicitly about 
when the, when the spirit of man is formed. Zechariah chapter 12 and uh, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel says the Lord, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heaven, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So, I wouldn't go too far with that, uh, but I would say that if there's any indication about when the spirit of man is formed, it's formed within him whenever he becomes a physical entity. Precisely what moment that happens, I don't know. But God does, and I'm satisfied with that. So, it does seem inconsistent, this passage, with the Mormon position, for sure, because if he forms the spirit within him, uh, and, and of course, you know, in their scheme of things, getting into that physical body is very, very crucial. That's how it's, we're going to be physical from the resurrection forward. Okay, that's, so that physical body being important, it seems like they would have a lot of trouble with this passage. God formed it within him. What else would that mean? The within him would have to be a physical body, would it not? And that would be the point in time when God formed it within him. So, just that thought there. Okay, now John 17 and 5 here is a passage they would use, again, for support of this position. And here, this is a, it's fairly weak, really, that they would use this one, but they do. Uh, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And what they say here is this Christ was spiritually with God before he came to this earth, to which we would say, yeah, that's right. But to extend that, to take that and say that that's a general principle that people are with God spiritually before they come to this earth, that's going entirely too far because to set that what you would have to say there is that things that are anything, if you're going to be consistent, anything that's true of Christ would then have to be true of us. Well, virtually everything that's true of Christ is not true of us. I mean, did we come to this earth to save man from their sin? No. Anything you can think of that's unique about Christ is not true of us. He is the Son of God in a very special way. He is deity, or we deity, certainly not, although the Mormon would say we we're going to become that, or could. That's more of a Jehovah's Witness idea that Joseph, that uh, Jesus is a lesser God. The Mormons really do not make a distinction. In that, in fact, they they do make they do say that Jesus was unique in that he is the only instance that they have, or they can point to where in the pre-mortal state Jesus progressed to Godhood, whereas God did not do that. God the Father, and we don't. And we don't. Jesus is the only, and, and they only they use the word somehow because they don't they haven't got that revelation yet. Somehow he, but anyway, the point is that they don't they do not see a, a hierarchy. But the J.W. There's some difference. He showed the difference in Jesus. Uh, before he was born to this, he was equal with God. Before he was based up. That we're not like that. Yeah. And, and that's a good line of argument. That's a good thing to show to a Mormon because you're, you're, you're showing them that you understand more about their position and using something that they would... Uh, my, my uh, you know, I didn't really come up with anything that tangible just then, but anything that you could think... Uh, wherein Jesus is unique. So, are we uh, were we born in Bethlehem? Were we born of a, fa- uh, of, a of a virgin? No. So, in other words, things you, you can't take things that are true of Jesus and make them general principles. What Jesus is saying here is evidence of his uniqueness, not a general. He's not teaching a general principle. Let me ask you something. You were saying that. Jesus and the devil were the first and second spiritual children of God. Mm-hmm. That That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Jesus, being the spiritual son of God, yet was equal to God. Now, will they say that? Mm-hmm. And so he existed in the form of God. Mm-hmm. What about the devil? He was never, he was the bearer of truth, an angel of light. He was exalted. He was lifted high because of his chronology more than any, you know, because Jesus was first born. He progressed because that Mormon idea of progression permeates even God the Father. 
so yes, he was very exalted, but not deity. Well, when was the distinction made between Jesus and Satan, so that Jesus becomes in the form of God and Satan? Is it after Satan made his effort to his offer God and was rejected? Uh, I, it was. I don't know the answer. Um, that 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 point in their Genesis chapter four marks the point. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter three marks the point when he is the savior of the world, but not before. Um, I'm thinking of Psalm chapter one ten. Um, what would they they would use that passage perhaps to identify that time as when he would. Now that would they would tie that to Genesis chapter three, but I don't know about the actual God. Uh, because they don't, they're not very specific on where Jesus and how he did this. Because this is very unique for Jesus to do this. They don't elaborate on how, and I can't think of they, if they elaborate on when that he became God. Somehow, 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 and I, I don't even remember. You're talking about Psalm 210. Uh, I'm thinking about Psalm 110, where God oh, says, uh, oh, 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 "Today I forgot you, you are my." Oh, did I say 100? What is it? Okay, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I'm sorry about that. I'm a little bit ambiguous myself here. Maybe it's from reading all this Mormons. I'll tell you one thing. It will, it's really, after studying on this stuff for so long, it really gets inside your head a little bit. <laughs> we dealt with that early on. They're uh, they're interested in, in selling Mormon candy. This stuff does not sell what we're talking about, but it is fundamental to what they believe, and you can see why they cannot deny it because it is essential core to their salvation. What it's what their hope is. Okay, um, just one little tidbit note. This is one area where the LDS and the Community of Christ do agree. Uh, they do agree on the pre-existence of souls. I was taught that as a child. All right. <clears throat> uh, John 3, verse 13. I'm not sure this was a very strong argument, uh, but here, no one has ascended to the heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying in this sense that he is very unique because he is one who has been in heaven. It seems like he's making the point that none of the rest of us have been. The, so I wouldn't go too far with that, but that does seem to be a case. If nothing else, it certainly states that Jesus is unique. All right, Acts chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. Now here, what they're trying to say is that we're the physical, or rather we're the spirit children of God. This may not necessarily speak to the wind, but it does, uh, they would say, teach that we are the, the offspring of God in a very literal sense. Okay. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like God, uh, gold or stone, silver or stone, something shaped by the uh, art or man's devising, or and a man's devising. So here, Paul's making the point that God's not an idol. But there, and he also makes the point that men are the offspring of God. So that looks pretty convincing. If, they, if this truly means that we are literally the offspring of God with a physical, with a physical wife, physical or not, if we are the offspring literally of God in whatever metaphysical way, then, um, <clears throat> then they might have a point here. But it is true that we are the offspring of God, but let's look at the, in the senses that we are. Isaiah chapter 64 here uh, kind of begins to give us some ideas on the subject. <clears throat> and this is the and this is another one the Calvinists like, by the way. But now, God, our Lord, y'all, I apologize. It's been a long week. Now, O Lord, you are our Father. Okay, so there it is. We are His. He is our Father. We are the clay, and you are the Potter, our Potter. And uh, all we are the work of your hand. So that is the sense in which we are the offspring of God. Not that we are physically or spiritually fathered by him in any procreative way, but rather that he created us. Now, Malachi 2.10 is again more explicit on this subject. Have we not all one father? 
has not one God created us? Okay, now he's teaching them here not to be treacherous with one another, but the point that he's making is we do have a father. God did father us when he created us. So the Bible teaches that, that men in general are that, and that when he created Adam and Eve, he created our forefathers. He created our ancestors, and they procreated, and we became the descendants of them. But in the sense that God was the, the, the genesis of all this, the one that began this, who created man, he's our father. Now, there is another way in which we are physically his, or we're his children, and that's down in, uh, Okay, well, it's pointed out in Romans 18. That's just the general sense in which we are the offspring. Did I say 18? I'm making up chapters now. <laughs> Eight. I had some teens in there, 16 and 17. Now, 16 and 17, let me be clear, this is pro-passages for them. They, they like these passages. But, uh, the, the, but I'm going to kind of clarify on my previous point by going back to verses uh, 14 and 15. All right, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So they see in this not only, again, are we the, we the offspring of God, he's our Father in a very literal sense, but also, this is beginning to show you that we are to be glorified the same way that he is. They read that exaltation in the celestial kingdom. So, when you, by the way, when you see passages, they would read passages that talk of us participating in the glory of Christ, ruling. They see all of that. They, they, they stretch all of that to mean exaltation. All right, but the problem that they have here is that this is not talking about man in general, and it's not talking about any kind of a physical or even metaphysical procreation. Um, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. How did we become children of God? By adoption. So that's not talking about anything like what they're talking about. Uh, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So that this, no, it is true that, again, just to, to sum this up real quick, we are the offspring of God in the sense that God created us, not the other thing. And it is also true that we become special children of God in the spiritual sense when we elect to obey the gospel and to, uh, to follow his way. Any comments or thoughts on that? Okay. You guys will have all of this material. You can make it better. <laughs> is all this actually in the Book of Mormon or is it in a lot of other books that are... Yeah, we've, the, we've had a series of lessons. We, we talked about the history of Mormonism. We talked about uh, the authority that they used in their scriptures and the general authority. The Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl Great Christ together with their general authorities are where most of these things come from, although they're, they're, they're more than glad to pull something out of context in the Scripture if they're studying with you and you bring it up. They're going to use these passages in an attempt to show you, hey, even the Bible teaches what we believe. So this actually all this theory actually come up with by Joseph Smith. He really was pretty fertile ground for it. He wrote a lot of things, probably, like I said, the King Follett Discourse, if you ever get a chance to read that, um, that's where the plurality of gods is explicitly stated. Brigham Young took it and came up with some new ideas to tackle. So, uh, and Bruce McConkie, I would say, one of the apostles, uh, was a very prolific writer, and he dreamed up a few things. And uh, uh, Kimball, uh, Kimball C. Smith, is that right? No. Uh, anyway, the, the president that was president in the 40s and 50s did a lot of writing, too. And uh, Legrand, uh, man, I'm really stumbling on the names here. Legrand, ah, never mind. In the 70s and 80s, they had a, they had a couple of guys that were Hugh Nibley did a lot of, and he was quite good for them. Actually, wrote a lot of apologetics. Hugh Nibley and uh, Legrand, Legard, yeah. What is it, Legard? Yeah, but not, it's not him. There's a Legrand. Le, Anyway, his name's funny, and I, I've got him quoted. Sir? 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 S
Yes, Legrand. Yeah, it's maybe in the S. But at any rate, he's in because we have quoted him because he wrote a lot. But the, the, to answer your question, no, it's not in the Book of Mormon. There are very few little allusions here and there, but they're basically even with the Book of Mormon doing the same thing that we see him doing with the Bible here. They're lifting things and twisting and, and that sort of thing. I just had somebody tell me, surely he had to be inspired because he wrote all this in five days. He couldn't have done that if he wasn't inspired. He couldn't have come out with the undertaking in five days. He couldn't even change it. <laughs> well, that five days, that it actually took, it took quite a while for them to, to get it. I don't know where they came up with the five days, but uh, in Joseph Smith's history, which is in here, which is, it, he, he, it took months. I don't know where they got five days from, but he reported that it took uh, longer than that. All right. Now, here, uh, please pardon my not being able to call these people's names to mind here. Um, here we're talking about the idea of eternal progression. Uh, we're talking about the exaltation that's to happen in the celestial kingdom. We're going to talk about those kingdoms briefly again. Uh, and again, verily I say to you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law. Now, by the way, this is in the Doctrine and Covenant. <clears throat> ye shall come, uh, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, ye shall come forth in the first resurrection. Now, now pay attention to these little, this first resurrection, this is a particular point in time that's important to them when Mormons will be resurrected. We'll see that on the chart here in a moment. And shall, uh, ye shall come forth in the first resurrection and shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominion. And ye shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed upon their heads which glory shall be a fullness. Uh, in some places I corrected their spelling on that but the older spellings used in a lot of their passages. Shall be a fullness and a continuation of seeds forever and ever. Now that's a pretty good hint. What, when I mentioned this becoming of God and what they think of as eternal salvation, this continuation of seeds, this is procreation in the celestial kingdom and ultimately in your own dominion, then they shall be gods. Then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting. Now isn't that interesting? That how, because, in other words, you're redefining if you have no end, that's from everlasting to everlasting. Well, it's no such thing. It may be to everlasting, but certainly it's from uh, because they continue. Then shall they be above all, because all things are subject unto them. They shall be God. Then they shall, sorry, then shall they be gods, because they have all power. And the angels are subject unto them. For straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth, uh, that leadeth unto exaltation and continuation of lives. And few there be that find it, because ye receive me not in the world, neither do ye know me. Isn't that a take perversion of Pure teaching. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, I mentioned this in regard to the Book of Mormon, but it is also true in the Doctrine and Covenants, Book of Abraham, Book of Moses. Now take word, you know, sentences, phrases that people would be comfortable with and then pervert them to say whatever they need said at the time. But it kind of sets you at ease. Few there being uh, that find it straight. Straight as the gate. You know, that, oh yeah, that Jesus said something like that, didn't he? You know, and it just kind of sets people at ease up. You read the Book of Mormon and you get into the, all the extensive quotations of Isaiah. Alright, so there it is. That's in their scripture. The Father has promised us that through our faithfulness we shall be blessed with the fullness of his kingdom. In other words, we, shall have, we will have the privilege of becoming like him. To become like him, we must all have the powers we must have all the powers of Godhood. Thus, a man and his wife, when glorified, will have spirit children who eventually will go on an earth like this one. We are all, and pass through the same kind of experiences, being subject to mortal conditions, and if faithful, then they also will receive the fullness of exaltation and partake of the same blessings. There is no end to this development. It will go on forever. We will become God and have jurisdiction over worlds, plural. And these worlds will be peopled by our own offspring, which we, which will, I'm sorry, we will have an endless eternity for this. So again, I mentioned there's no ambiguity about the, how far this is going to go on. Yeah, this is, this propagation, this continuation of seeds is, is forever. And it was, I, 
Yeah, I mean, it appeals to the vanity. I mean, if you look at what it appeals to, it appeals to sexual drive of men because this is physical procreation with, with uh, your wife. Perhaps if you, in the olden days, with your many wives, but now they would distance themselves from that. Um, it, it appeals to the sense of power. Who, who's being exalted here? Is God on the throne or are we on the throne? We're us. So you can see this is straight from Satan's line of thinking. You shall be God. So very appealing. Um, again, I mentioned the celestial kingdom here. Let me elaborate just a bit more because uh, Eric is going to be in here in 10 minutes. Um, <clears throat> let me go ahead and go through the rest of this really quickly. So we got ourselves on earth here. Uh, we fairly favored. We're born in the U.S. We've been exposed to the Mormon teaching pretty early on. At death, we're going to, we'll say we will have rejected it. We're going to be going to the spirit prison hell. Um, we'll be here because we're not Mormons. However, God being merciful, the Mormons will come down here and teach us. And we'll have an opportunity to obey the gospel, the fullness of the gospel then. Um, and, and this will continue until the first resurrection occurs. Now, one thing that's needing to happen according to the, res- the uh, restoration gospel is... Uh, the kingdom needs to be ready here in the United States because when God comes back, he's coming back to Adam Amon Andi, which is in just north of far west Missouri. That's where he's coming back to because, by the way, that's where the Garden of Eden was, according to Mormonism. So <clears throat> I'm not, I promise I'm not making that up. <laughs> it, it just sounds like it, doesn't it? Greg's making, he's been reading too much, he's making stuff up now. Um, First resurrection, that's what we mentioned earlier. That's that resurrection when the, the Mormon man who has had his marriage and his children sealed in the temple, he will call up. God will not, his wife will not be resurrected. He will have the power to call her up in, the, in this first resurrection. And then they will enjoy the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, the judgment will occur. And at that point, then... The, well, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just uh, go forward here, and because we're not going to be able to c- cover that text there. Let's see. Okay. And, and you guys can, you can shoot this one down real quick by yourself. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. They try to take this, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, to mean that we're going to become like God in every way. We're going to be exalted. He, this, why would God tell us to do something if we couldn't do it? If God is, you know, what is the nature of God? God is all-powerful. God is perfect. He is all things. Well, he's telling you, you're going to do that too. You're going to become God. Well, we know that the perfect here, uh, teleoi, teleoi, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but uh, we know, we recognize that it's very much a New Testament word. It means to be mature, to be complete. It does not mean to be exalted. All right. Take my word, you've got these passages. I've got the things burned for you so you can read through them. I want to get to this point right here where we can look at the uh, who's going where. According to modern doctrine, Mormon doctrine, at the end of this world, everyone will be resurrected. That's why Jesus Christ came, so that all could receive the resurrection. Not salvation in the sense that we understand it, but just resurrection, everybody. At that time, all but Satan and the very most wicked will go to heaven. Okay. I may, I'm a little ambiguous here uh, at that time. The time I should have put in there is when the judgment, the final judgment occurs. <clears throat> when that final judgment occurs is when we will be sifted into the three main levels of heaven or into outer darkness. The celestial kingdom, don't strain your mind to think of where you've heard the word celestial before because you haven't. It's a made-up word. It doesn't have any etymology at all. Joseph Smith ever, evidently took celestial or terrestrial and said, I'll just take telescope, you know, I'll just make up a word. Um, at any rate, I got, maybe he had a telescope on his mind because it has to do with the stars. I mean, um, what it, you know, this is a really, and this, this, this concept of the celestial kingdom is very much at odds with scriptures on teaching on heaven because look who's going there and how it's described. And the Book of Mormon uh, intended for us to actually do some fairly good reading in the 76th section of the Book of Mormon. We're not going to have time, but... This, this celestial kingdom, Muslims, Hindus, 
liars, whore, in fact, there's, I've got some quotes, liars, whoremongers, almost exactly what's said in Revelation chapter 21, that would not inherit the kingdom of heaven, or said that they would inherit this, this kingdom. And yet, notice verse 89 in section 76, we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the celestial which surpasses all understanding. In other words, and, and they're not ambiguous about this. There's plenty of writing on what the celestial kingdom is. It's going to be a wonderful place. Ministration of angels. There'll be servants. They'll be essentially subject to those who go there. The angels will be ministers to them. The Son will not go there. The Holy Spirit will be present. They will, they will get to enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not Jesus, not the Father. The telestial or terrestrial, this is where good people, this is where you guys except for me and Bob are going. <clears throat> but this is, this, is, this is where good people are going to go. And the good thing about this is the sun, the sun will be there as well. <clears throat> this is the middle kingdom. Um, and then the celestial kingdom, um, this is the one that you want to get to. This is why you are a Mormon. But even the celestial kingdom is, uh, is the subdivided. Let's say, and I think someone asked the question, if you're a Mormon and yet you're not married, will you get to go to the celestial kingdom? Well, the answer is yes. If you're not a lukewarm Mormon, a lukewarm Mormon's going to get subjugated down to the terrestrial. But a good, faithful Mormon, faithful to the celestial laws, and this, we're talking about word of wisdom, we're talking about temple ordinances and, and all these things that they can do, they will go to the celestial kingdom, but they will not go to the highest level of the celestial kingdom. Let me get, and then uh, we'll go back to the chart and I'll elaborate. Outer darkness, uh, this is, this is what we would think of as hell, although there's some dis- discussion about whether or not over time the entities that go there, our only hope will be that over time we will become disorganized entities. We will go back to our primal state. And I guess we will await some sort of reformation by another god or something. I don't, I don't know. But they, the only thing they do say about that is that they don't like to really refer to it as uh, Joseph Smith said that the hellfire and brimstone was, was our own consciousness. That it was the hellfire and brimstone was our our mental state in that. And I'm not going to disagree, but I think that that will be a terrible part of hell is the fact that we know what we miss. <clears throat> But he elaborates a bit farther on that. So, if you can see this, what I was talking about is these are Mormons not married in the temple. I said they, they did everything, but they weren't. They didn't have the marriages sealed in the temple. They also could be Mormons who did. They would have to, even if they didn't do that, uh, they would have to do some proxy baptism for the dead. That's part of the celestial kingdom. Uh, they couldn't get up here if they didn't. But in order to reach Godhood, you have to have, you have to be married, you have to have been married in the temple, you have to have your children sealed to, you have to do all the celestial uh, ordinances and whatnot. Now for support for this, they go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 and 42. <clears throat> and I don't elaborate in my, my notes here too much about it, but uh, it's pretty simple. The context says, what's in view here. Verses 40 and 41 through, well, 40 through 42. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. No, no mention of a telestial. If you have a JST version of the Bible, it, it conveniently inserts telestial, just so that you'll know that. There is the glory, and by the way, if there's, no, they wouldn't study with it. An RLDS person would, but uh, they would, they would read it from theirs and say telestial, but. You won't see that. The, uh, the glory, uh, there is one glory of the sun, verse 41, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. By the way, they, so they're using that to say that even in the celestial kingdom, that's what they believe that's talking about there, um, that there are, you know, you have bright stars and you have dim stars. So there's some intimation about... Uh, uh, some indication, I should say, about different levels, even in the celestial kingdom. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, is raised in incorruption. Well, the context is very clear, what's in view here. Is the answer in the question anything to do with kingdoms 
of heaven. Is there any hint that kingdoms of heaven are viewed? We don't have to wonder what's in view. Look at verse 35. But someone will say, you know, Paul here, through the Spirit, is answering the question that's in verse 35. How are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he pleases. Paul is answering a very specific question. So the context will not allow an interpretation that is about kingdoms of heaven. He's simply making the point that even though we may not understand it, we're not going to be the way we are. We're going to be different. And that difference is going to be glorified. And you can understand that because there's a flesh of fish, there's a flesh of, you know, there's a flesh of uh, the stars. You know, they're different. Different bodies have different, uh, different glory. He's just using analogies from this creation to make spiritually that are different. Uh, so. Right. So, but, but no kingdom, no kingdom, none of this that, that's talked about here. And again, as we've stated all week, they're really, they're trying to use this passage to say to you, look, what we believe here in the Bible, but the truth of the matter is they've got stuff way, 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 way more explicit than this, Doctrine and Covenant 76, for example. They're not depending on this verse. So they won't bother one bit if you, when you show them that he's not talking about that. Second um, Corinthians chapter two or twelve verses two through four, and I and we'll have to quit here, I believe. Well, I tell you what, until Eric comes, we're going to we're going to pedal over and look at Ezekiel thirty-seven real quick too, because I think that's essential that you see that. But I would be remiss; I would have to, I would have let you down if we don't discuss Ezekiel thirty-seven at least a little bit. All right, two through four. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. By the way, they, they, when you're reading through some of their modern revelations, very uh, often they'll, they'll, they'll refer to... Now, we, we got this part and we can tell you, but then we got this other part we can't tell you. It kind of enhances the whole, we've got the keys to the priesthood and we got the authority and we know stuff you don't know, you know. They, they, but they'll throw that in a lot. So what's, what's it talking about here? This, hey, this is talking about the third heaven. That, that implies there's three heavens. Well, there are three heavens, but which three are they? There he is, and to, to take that stand completely ignores the way the, the language would be used. Uh, there's the heaven, which is the sky, the firmament. There's the heaven, which is beyond, that is, the stars and, and the universe, the universal heaven. And then there's the heaven where God is. That's, he's just being clear that this is the heaven where God is. I wasn't caught up into the sky. I wasn't caught up into outer space. This is heaven. This is where God is. And that's all in the world that he's saying. All right. So we covered six subjects at least. But uh, let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, I'm going to... Have any of you ever, when you guys studied with the Mormons, did they bring up Ezekiel 37 at all? Hmm? Well, yeah, that's right. It is about the dry bones, but that's not the part they're talking about. All right, in, in Ezekiel chapter 37, <clears throat> they want us to go to verse 15. Uh, this is not the part about the dry bones, but it, it, it really, it's a good point because it's kind of a continuation of thought there, clearly, of, of the point of the dry bones. What does God say in the, in the valley of dry bones? Yeah, you may be just like, you may be dusty, brittle, dead bones, but I can make you a nation again. I can do it. You know, I'm in, in the vision that Ezekiel saw with these bones coming back together and the flesh coming to send you and everything coming back on them. God can do this. He can make you an army again. And, the, and it's just a beautiful vision. Well, so here then, and that's good to have in mind, here then he's talking about these sticks. Verse 16, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. So this is a stick you'd write on. <clears throat> For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions take another stick and write on it. Two sticks being written on. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Okay? Then join them together, uh, I'm sorry, then join them one to another for yourself into one stick. 
and they will become in your hand one, or one in your hand. Now, I really, the one night that I didn't bring my Mormon scriptures with me was the perfect night to have it. Because do you remember that big old fat book I had in my hand? That's what they see when they read this. That's what they're thinking when they read through here. They're thinking Bible, Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. and specifically the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And you can hold them in your one hand. See, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. But they were talking about, this verse was talking about over that. It was written, yeah, Right, the Book of Mormon would have been, let me think about this, Ezekiel was writing around 600 years before Christ. So, well, he would have been writing 580, 580 to, to 600 years before Christ. Or, yeah. Um, it's always good to have Bob in the room because he's got that. Uh, he was writing with who? Let's get a little quiz here. Flashlight, as Bob would say. Where, where was Ezekiel writing? In uh, That's right. He was by the river Kibar. He was down there with the people. Okay, good. <laughs> So I'm reading the head interpretation here that the uh, the nation is two to one. Well, that's right. That's right. I don't really know what that means myself. Well, whenever, so first let's, let's get on down here because verse 18, when uh, you said we've had them, they're in our hand here, so uh, verse 18. Always good to look in the text to see if there's an explanation when this is one of those good places there is. And when the, your, the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? They won't, they, they, they're not eager to go to this part because it's very clear. Uh, so says the Lord, and they have to stick with it for here. Uh, says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with, with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will become one in my hand. Okay, still haven't really explained it. He just said these sticks are going to become one. It's kind of reiterating the main point. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say, because he's literally going to do this, right? Ezekiel is going to literally go write and do this. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. That's hint number one. Could this land include ancient America? Well, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. That's what this means. It cannot even remotely mean what they say it means. All right, I'm done. Um, I have uh, sure. I have. The prophecy is regarding the unity of God's people. Uh, in other words, the Israel of God that falls into the collection. The New Testament, yes. Unity in God's people. It's two to one. Yeah, the New Israel. Now, now, wouldn't you say that this is one of those cases, really, where there's 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 the foreground and the and then the further ground, and you're describing the ultimate, the the, the spiritual, the, the true fulfillment of it. But there is also a physical sense in which, when they came back out of captivity, uh, the ten, but the Right, that's the two tribes. Mm-hmm, that's right. So you're saying it's talking about Judah coming back. Well, it is talking about Judah coming back, but I, I'll, but I think see they make a big deal about this too. The lost tribes of Israel, they go and have a whole thing about this. But there is mention of whenever you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, Ezra in particular. Others of the tribes are back in the land. Now, it doesn't give an exhaustive list, and you can't identify every tribe, but there are of the lost tribes, there what people like to refer to the lost tribes, there are some of them in the land. Uh, but again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's the ultimate fulfillment of it. It is not, because the, because the ultimate fulfillment is... In other words, you take a stick representing an entity, the entity of the northern kingdom, and everything Right. It was only in Right. And we know that a number of those individuals, a lot of them, have moved from the north in the south, mm-hmm. living in the south. That's right. Lost. And therefore, uh, they could easily be explained among the people of Judah when they come back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have already been down there. 
but to the to the extent there were any people from the northern kingdom, uh, there was never any registration right. of the of the entity in the north. That's right. No one get to the entity in the south. The only sense in which you can that kind of thing, I believe, is the ultimate joining of God's people into one one Israel. That's right, and that Israel would extend not only to those people, but of course to the Gentiles as well. Uh, it's not totally the New Testament. No, that verse is not. Okay. No, that passage is not. But Revelation uh, 6.16 does refer to Israel of God. Uh, you take in uh, Romans 9 to 11, mm-hmm. being made there, they're not all Israel. They're all Israel. Israel. And then he goes on to discuss this, you know, like he was going through olive tree and mm-hmm. show very clearly that the Gentiles and the Jews constitute that. Yeah, well, I think it's two in the dead, that's the right. Mm-hmm. That's two out of the one I have. I really appreciate what you've done. I appreciate the study. And I appreciate the background knowledge that you've had in this <laughs> subject that you've been writing. And we really do appreciate it. And 